Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Tonight, UFOs, hyper-advanced alien technology that is far beyond our own. But you know what? Sometimes they crash, allegedly. We're talking Kayomi, Chihuahua, Mexico, and Aztec, New Mexico. All that and more on Small Town Secret. Welcome to episode 8 of season 6, and it's a big old UFO crash episode this week. An episode that, dare I say it, 
I got bigger than I thought it was going to be. Uh, I uh, Going into this, I thought this is going to be kind of a lopsided one because I have a whole ton of info, a great book to point to and everything for one of the stories. And then for the other one, not so much. There's stuff out there, but I don't get a chance really to look into everything. But uh, something magical kind of happened with the second story, and I'll get into it more when we talk about Aztec. We're going to talk about Kaomi first, because I think it is a intriguingly interesting tale. But as it turns out, Aztec New Mexico, uh, very interesting in its own right, perhaps for very different reasons. Uh, I've actually been looking forward to this episode for a while. I don't know if I mentioned it last time, but I switched this one with what we did last week with the dares because I wanted to break up kind of the uh, the topics of the show. There's going to be a lot of hauntings at the end. And so now here we are with uh, not just an episode about UFOs, uh, maybe a dusting of hardcore aliens, but uh, uh, alleged crashes in small towns, of which I am finding out there are uh, a lot. So that's kind of where that whole intro came from is like, you know, these things are supposed to be these super advanced craft, but uh, they crash all the time. And we're going to talk about two of those places tonight like we do. And then, of course, we have some news and then we have a small town secret to share and all of that. So, uh, uh, yeah, that's about it. I don't have anything great for the intro. So uh, let's just get into it with uh, Kayomi in Chihuahua, Mexico. Hello, I'm Courtney. And I'm Andreel. And we host Spellcast, a podcast dedicated to all things witchy, occult, and spiritual. Spellcast seeks to bridge the gap between the mundane and the occult by sharing knowledge and welcoming all those who are curious about the worlds of magic, philosophy, art, and higher truth. You can find us on most major platforms, and if you'd like to follow us on Facebook, you can find us at Spellcast Podcast. We have a Facebook page and also a private Facebook group for you to join. We are also on Instagram at Witchy Page, and you can find us on Twitter at Spellcast Pod. If you would like to join our online coven, you can always visit us at patreon.com forward slash Spellcast. And we are now proud to be a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. If you'd like to see us and our friends that are part of that production company, you can visit us at straightupstrange.com. And remember, there's a little witch in all of us. And spirits live in the mirror. Before we get into tonight's topics, I want to take a minute and let you know that there is so much more small town secrets to enjoy. Check out the Patreon. There are one, two, and three dollar tiers of support with stuff like a shout out on the main show, exclusive buttons and stickers, MP3s to the music I create, also an ad slash promo free version of the main show as well as STS Backroads, the Patreon-only podcast that comes out in the off weeks, which means you'll get content every week, all in your own RSS feed. There is all of this 
and more. To sign up, go to patreon.com slash stscast or stscast.com and click on the support tab. And now, on with tonight's episode. Kaomi is a small, sparsely populated town of about 709. It acts as mostly a hub for the many nearby ranches in the area. Kaomi is indeed beyond a sleepy little town. However, in the late summer of 1974, it may have been host to one of the strangest UFO crashes of all time. It's become known over the years as Mexico's Roswell. The tale begins near Corpus Christi in Texas. At around 10.07 p.m. on August 25, 1974, when an unknown object was sighted by long-range radar stations, one at Ellington Air Force Base near Houston, one at Lachlan Air Force Base near San Antonio, and as well as the FAA radar facility in Oilton. The radar stations watched as the object appeared out of nowhere, 200 miles out in the Gulf of Mexico. It was heading north towards Corpus Christi. When it was first tracked, it was traveling 2,500 miles per hour at an altitude of 75,000 feet. To put this in perspective, the top speed for aircraft at the time was around 2,200 miles per hour, and most planes didn't crack 50,000 feet. As the object headed further north at around 155 miles from uh, Corpus Christi, it suddenly changed its heading 290 degrees as well as slowed down to around 1950 miles per hour. At 1010, the object crossed the border near Brownsville, Texas. It then dropped from 75,000 feet to 45,000 feet and slowed to around 2,000 miles per hour. Then, around 1030, the mysterious radar blip vanished off of everyone's screens and never popped back on. And I'm going to include a little picture in the show notes that shows the object's supposed flight path. It is uh, very wonky, to say the least. It's kind of a zigzag pattern. It, it starts, like I said, it starts out of nowhere in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico, and it's unclear as if, like, this thing just appeared. Or if, I'm not sure, maybe this is where the radar kind of started, so it just didn't show up on radar until it got within range. I don't know yet. But it comes in from the Gulf of Mexico. It kind of flies northwest towards Corpus Christi, gets just there, and then shoots down southward, almost straight down south, and then starts to come up again. Now it's doing now it's doing northwest again, but this time it's pretty much flying right along the Texas-Mexico border until it gets to Brownsville, and then it kind of down again, and that is when it disappears from the radar. Meanwhile, at approximately 9.30 p.m., a small aircraft, most likely a Cessna 180 with a Mexican registration, took off from the El Paso International Airport and flew low as it entered the Mexico border. It was last seen on radar flying over the ghost town of Shafter, Texas, which is just 76 miles from Kaomi. Then, just like the other one, it was gone. 
this also happened around 10.30 p.m. It would appear that both the plane and the unknown object both left radar at the same time and in roughly the same place, i.e. they crashed into each other. If this is the case, then they both went down in the desolate and rugged Chihuahuan Desert near Kiomi. Since the plane was registered to Mexico, it was up to Mexico to launch a rescue effort. And so they did the next morning. Uh, they did that, like I said, it was kind of an inhospitable place and uh, it is not the type of place that you wanna be uh, going into or messing around with at night if you don't have to. At around 8 a.m., a spotter plane was dispatched most likely from Chihuahua City. At 10.30 a.m., that spotter plane reported over the radio that they had found evidence of the plane's wreckage. However, it wasn't just Mexican officials who were listening to that radio chatter. The U.S. was eavesdropping on the conversation. Soon after the pilot spotted the plane, he came over the radio once more and started talking of another crash, just a few miles from the first. He described this object as not a plane, but a disc, which was still mainly intact, unlike the small plane, which had been pretty much destroyed. After he made this declaration, radio silence was announced and nothing more came over the radio. Later that afternoon, a Mexican military convoy made its way to the crash sites. Jeeps and a couple of flatbed trucks trugged along through the harsh desert. By this time, the U.S. government had reached out to Mexico offering assistance. After all, the plane had left U.S. airspace. This was most likely an affront to get their hands on the UFO wreckage before the Mexicans could. This tactic didn't work, however. So yes, the assistance was in quotation marks. The convoy first arrived at the plane crash, gathering up the remains of the small aircraft. Then it was on to the second crash, which was far more interesting. The second object was a classic UFO-shaped disc, around 16 feet in diameter and around five feet high. It was indeed mainly intact, with a 12-inch hole at one end of the craft and a large 24-inch dent, probably from where it impacted with the ground, on the other. An amazing sight to behold for anyone that would have come across it. It would seem, though, that this convoy was not alone, as a U.S. Keyhole KH-9 spy plane was observing overhead. As the Mexican military was packing up the second crash, the U.S. military was busy readying a quick response team out of Fort Bliss near the White Sands Missile Base in New Mexico. A team was prepped, as well as three Bell UH-1 helicopters and most likely a Sikorsky CH-53E Sea Stallion, which had the capacity to carry up to 55 passengers up to seven tons of cargo. So the Bell UH-1s are your classic -na 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 -na, like Vietnam coming over the sunset uh, 
Apocalypse Now helicopters. And the Sikorsky is just literally, if you ever if you look at a picture of it, it is just a giant helicopter. Like, it doesn't look cargo-y and, like, you know, fat. It just looks like they took the normal design of a helicopter and just made it gigantic. And this thing, you know, usually see it uh, towing something underneath it, like a Humvee or other, other, you know, like a tank, possibly. It could, it could carry a lot. It could hold a lot and just, you know, fly it around, which is what they end up doing with it, by the way. And then everything changed. As the U.S. monitored the convoy, now on its way back, they noticed that the convoy had stopped and had not moved in quite some time. It wouldn't be until much more detailed pictures of a low-altitude flyover reached the U.S. military, and they found why the convoy had stopped moving. These pictures showed that of some of the doors to the vehicles had been thrown open. At least two bodies could be seen lying on the road not far from a jeep. This tragic development gave the U.S. military the in they needed. It seems that some uh, unknown, possibly biological agent had been let loose, and now the Mexican government was all too happy but to allow the U.S. come in and help clean it up. Which uh, makes sense. At the time, the U.S. had more experience with such things and had better equipment to deal with it. And among that equipment may have possibly been some sort of air fuel bomb or perhaps an MK-54 Special Atomic Demolition Munition, the uh, SADM, S-A-D-M getting that here in a little bit. It would be around 2.30 p.m. on Monday the 26th when the rapid response team would lift off from Fort Bliss and head for Kiyomi. They landed at 4.53 p.m. and found that all of the members of the convoy were indeed dead. Not sure why they were dead, the RR team wore protective gear. At 5.46 the UFO was covered and attached to the bottom of the sea stallion, and the team took off. It was here that they may have detonated whatever device they had brought with them in order to cleanse the area of whatever may have killed the original convoy. The aerial convoy flew towards the Davis Mountain Range in Texas. Then they landed in a clearing off of the intersection of highways 118 and 166, where they uncoupled the UFO and headed back to Fort Bliss. Some soldiers remained to secure the area. The UFO was then later loaded onto a U.S. military flatbed truck, where it was first taken, many assume, to the CDC in Georgia, which seems perfectly plausible. Uh, they loaded this thing up, they drove, I think in the book it says it takes about six hours or something to get from there to Georgia, but it took them much longer. It took them like 10 hours or so because they stayed away from major towns. They uh, stayed on the back roads. They didn't go on highways. They, if this thing was contaminated, they were doing everything they could to keep it away from majorly populated areas. 
probably means it went through a lot of small towns uh, en route. But eventually it did make its way to the CDC, they think, where it was put, it was secured, it was put in the facility. No one was able to see it, it was studied, it was maybe decontaminated. And then, of course, it was most likely carted off to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. And really, after that, the story and the whereabouts of the UFO uh, cease. It truly is a remarkable story. But a story that didn't start making the rounds until much later, in 1992, when a mysterious piece known as the Deneb Report started popping up. And that's where all of this kind of comes from. Uh, the dates and the times and the descriptions and all of that come out of the Deneb Report. I have a link to the show notes if you want to take a look at it. Over the 90s, the story gained more and more traction and would eventually be researched extensively by No Torres, or it might be Noe Torres, I'm not sure how you say it, N-O-E is how he spells his name, and Ruben Urente. They would write several books on the incident, as well as traveling to Kiyomi on a couple of locations. And that is where I got most of my research. Uh, they've basically, they've written, I think, three books on it, but it's always like an updated version of the previous book. And so the one that is out now is The Kiyomi Incident, UFO Crash Near Presidio, Texas, uh, by Noe Torres and Ruben Urente. That is kind of the uh, most up-to-date version of their research. And they've been on, like, UFO Hunters. If you remember that show, it was on History Channel. It was the UFO version of Ghost Hunters. And um, a few other ones where they have talked about this and even brought the crews out to Kiyomi to look at some of the stuff. But they're the ones that have really headed the research effort into the story and for looking for evidence. And uh, they, they found some stuff. While visiting Kiyomi, they interviewed witnesses and visited the desolate Elanio area, where many have said is where both crash sites are. One trip out to El Nino, Elanio, I want to say El Nino all the time, Elanio, they discovered several small airplane parts. These, however, have never been positively identified, and there's good reason for that. Uh, they've never really been able to find any concrete news of this plane crash in 74. You know, no newspaper articles, no anything. They aren't even sure if it was a Cessna 180. Eventually, they did find, I think, a newspaper article about a plane crash with one pilot, and he died in 74 near the area a little bit, but the dates didn't match up, the times didn't match up, so it's it's been an interesting point of conjecture in the story thus far, but not a positive ID. To muddy the waters further, uh, many residents remember a plane crash, but it happened in the 1980s while someone was smuggling drugs across the border. And I think as time has gone on, more and more people have come forward saying, oh yeah, I do remember a weird thing happening in 74 with plane crash and people coming to get it but they often bring up this this 1980s crash from where you know a small plane had was flying low it probably clipped one of the mountains and crashed out there and they found out that they were smuggling drugs 
they also discovered a rather odd site just outside of Kaomi. They found a deep hole in the ground resembling an unfinished or abandoned mine shaft, surrounded by blackened and burnt soil. The area was also littered with light bulbs that could have gone to light alls. And if you remember back to the Reynoldsham episode, light alls are those, I don't want to say portable because they're not, but they are on wheels, they are lights that can be toted out pretty much anywhere. They run off of fuel and you can set them up and, you know, get light wherever you need it to be. Also littering the site were the remains of several discarded 55-gallon oil drums. Later investigations would show the area around the hole had evidence of some sort of accelerant and had an increase of radioactivity down in the actual pit itself. Could this pit have been used to destroy evidence of what remained of the dead convoy? And I ask myself that question so that I can answer that question, and I think that that answer is yes. Uh, in the book, they talk a little bit about how people were like, we don't know what that is. We don't know where it came from. It's like someone attempted to start building a mine shaft or some sort of, of pit or tunnel, and then they just gave up and stopped. And the pictures in the book show, I mean, that's what it looks like. It is just a hole in the ground. It's not super big. So, you know, it's like a Saddam Hussein-like spider crawl hole. And it just has some boards over it. And then all of this stuff around it. So I'm going to pause it now. I'm going to speculate on what happened. I think that, yes, the Mexican government found something very strange, uh, highly toxic probably, that made a bunch of people sick and they died bringing it back, and then we came in, we were somehow able to convince the Mexican government to let us come in and clean it up, ergo we could take it, we detonated some sort of device to to uh, fumigate the area, cleanse the area, if you will. Rather, than, if that was a small suitcase nuke, I don't know. I think it might have been more like an air fuel bomb type of thing, which just you know sprays out a bunch of fuel into the air and then ignites it and makes a big explosion. Uh, but this thing was radioactive, so maybe maybe it was some sort of small nuclear device, or maybe just the UFO and stuff around it was radioactive. Like, if the plane hit this UFO and the UFO had some sort of radioactivity, it's possible that the wreckage of the plane and stuff could have inherited some of that radioactivity. So I think they came out there, they found it, they died, the U.S. came in, took what they wanted, destroyed the convoy, and then, of course, the Mexican government had to come out and take care of the convoy that is now a burnt husk out in the middle of the desert and probably the wreckage of the plane, too. They dug this whole buried stuff, probably, you know, maybe, maybe not all of it, but the plane and some of the evidence, put it down in there, uh, probably detonated something again to further destroy it. That is why it is burnt around the outside. That is why there's accelerant all over the place. You know, the radioactivity might have been from some kind of small bomb. Like I said, it might have been from the alien craft itself. And that is how the Mexican government kind of flushed away what was remaining of that convoy. My only kind of issue with it is that it's apparently not super far away from town. It's like five or 10 miles or something 
outside of Kaiomi. And my thing is, like, if you're going to do that, wouldn't you just do it, like, out in the middle of the desert where it would be really, really hard for anyone to actually stumble upon it? And uh, then I, I, like, I wonder that, and then my brain goes to, like, well, maybe this was, like, an already existing mine shaft. People had just forgotten about it or something, or maybe they, maybe it is a mine shaft that was started construction on and did just end suddenly. But it was there, and the government was like, you know, that hole is right there. We could use that and uh, just take care of this. So, I don't know. It intrigues me a lot. I think this is the most interesting part about the whole thing. I think if evidence is going to be found, it's going to be found there. And that is not the only thing. I didn't really put this in my notes, but I want to touch on it really, really quickly. In the book, they talk about how, while they were kind of researching and doing some other stuff, the Wikipedia page of Kaiomi was suddenly being edited by someone that was giving very specific details, most namely names of some of the U.S. soldiers that went out there to retrieve it and the names of some of the Mexican soldiers that died in the convoy. Very specific. And uh, the, the authors tried to get a hold of this guy, and they did, and he kind of said, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm filling it out, filling out the article. It's too weak. But then, like, he would never really come around and confirm anything. And then eventually he was like, you know what? You're right. Uh, my sources for this aren't great. And he took it off. Rather that is real info or not, like, they put it in the book. It's not there anymore. But in the book, they do list the names of what it did say. I think the next step is to uh, start digging into all those names and just see where those names lead. So yeah, I think uh, you're going to find your evidence in that hole if you're going to find any evidence at all. And uh, those names, for better or for worse, should really be looked into. So the mystery of what happened that night in 1974 goes on. And I believe that we have not heard the last of the Kaiomi incident or Mexico's Roswell. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist 
specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Aztec, New Mexico, has an estimated population of 6,000 369, and is the county seat of San Juan County in northwestern New Mexico. Many stop there on their way to the Aztec Ruins National Monument, but is it possible that in 1948, just a year after Roswell, another craft crashed just outside of Aztec? The answer is... maybe? The story first appeared in a variety column by writer Frank Scully. Scully would later reprise the story in his 1950 book, Behind Flying Saucers. And this, right off the bat, I guess, is where the story gets really interesting, at least for me, in a weird synchronistic type of way. So I was looking, I'd heard about Aztec forever. I never really sat down and dug into it. And I wasn't finding a lot of info online other than like some wikipedia pages and little articles here and there but nothing with a lot of meat couldn't even really find like a lot of like youtube videos on it or anything there is a, another book out there i'll get into that one later uh, but it's out of print i'll talk about it near the end it kind of comes into play but i was reading i was like behind the flying saucers man that sounds familiar you know i was like i've heard of that and then I remembered last year, about this time, I had bought a vintage UFO book. The only vintage UFO book that I own. I don't remember why I bought it. I think I bought it for some obscure UFO story. I might have bought it for Aztec, and I just don't remember. But I was like, I've got that book. Let me, I'm going to go upstairs. I'm going to check that out. It was written in the 50s. But of course, every UFO book written in the 50s, every other one had the term flying saucers in it so i go up i grab that book and lo and behold i own that book not only do i own that book but i own like a first edition if you will of that book i got it really cheap because it doesn't have the dust cover on it but i do have it it's the same book i'm like here it is this is amazing so that just actually opened up a treasure trove into the story i flipped through it i found where they talk about aztec and I was able to go from there and really find the root of the Aztec tale. In the book, Scully recounts a story told to him by a Dr. G, and that's spelled G-E-E, -E, and a Silas M. Newton. 
who who pops up as I was slipping through it. I found his name in another chapter, so it was it was it seemed they had some sort of relationship a little bit with each other. Doctor G was introduced to Scully, I'm assuming through Newton, as one of the foremost top magnetic research specialists in the U.S. Doctor G told Scully an incredible tale. In 1948, Dr. G and some other associates observed a UFO on one of their telescopes. They predicted where the UFO would crash, and the crash was indeed discovered, possibly by some oil workers who had been dispatched to Hart Canyon. And now that little part doesn't appear in Scully's book about the oil workers and the, uh, all in the, you know, the Hart Canyon. They were, dis out, they were dispatched out there for a brush fire, but that is something that has made its way into the story over the years. I think by the Ramses, who have also looked into this, and they also wrote the book that is no longer in print. Once again, I'll kind of get to them at the end. The crew had stumbled upon a 100 foot in diameter dish-shaped craft, but Dr. G would go on to claim its exact measurements were 99 feet and 99, 99 over one hundredth of an inch. As the beings that inhabited the UFO used a system based on nines. He called it uh, the system of nines. This massive craft had a broken porthole in which to gain entry. It wouldn't take long for the U.S. military to show up along with Dr. G and take control of the site begin to study it. Dr. G would make many fantastic claims about the craft. Inside, they found 16 bodies of small beams ranging in size from 36 to 42 inches, all of them dead from what he thought was sudden exposure to our atmosphere. They found the inside to be intact with a control panel that after much debate, they decided, eh, maybe we shouldn't touch that. They really wanted to though, they wanted to press them buttons and see what they did, but they decided that is not the best way to go about this. On board, they found one food source in the form of, quote, little wafers and water that was exactly like our own water, only it was twice as heavy. He called it heavy water. They also found some sort of timepiece, which was described as a metal disc about the size of a silver dollar, which had four markings on it at 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 6 o'clock, and 9 o'clock. It seemed that this timepiece would fully rotate once every magnetic month. And what that means is, is like, our day isn't actually 24 hours. Magnetically, and accurately, it is uh, 23 hours and 58 minutes, but we're going to round up. And so, you know, you do the math and you shave off those extra minutes, you get a magnetic month, which is slightly shorter than a normal month. The bodies and the craft were dismantled, and they were sent to a government testing laboratory, most likely Los Alamos, where the craft was reassembled and one of the bodies a dissected. G would also say that he was sadly disappointed when he got to the uh, laboratory, if you will, 
that they had, they had put the craft back together, but they had completely dismantled the control panel that had all of those fancy buttons that everyone wanted to press, and they couldn't research the control panel any further. Dr. G would also go on to say that this was just one of three discs that they had recovered and stored at the lab. The story caused uh, quite a stir when it was first released, and then again when Scully's book came out. But a couple of years later, San Francisco Chronicle writer J.P. Kahn, spelled K-A-H-N, wrote an expose on two men. One named Silas M. Newton, and the other named Leo G. Brewer, I think is how you spell his name, it's G-E-B-A-U-R, who you might know as Dr. G. In his story, he alleged that these men were going around Aztec and selling something that they called the Doodle Bug. The Doodle Bug was a uh, metallic box about 16 inches long with an antenna protruding from its top, as well as a series of dials and lights. The device was based off the magnetic technology of the crashed UFO, or so they claimed. This amazing machine could do more than just detect oil. It could also find water and natural gas. It could also diagnose a host of medical problems if you grabbed on to the little plutonium ball on the end of the antenna. It even had a self-destruct device if one were to try to tamper with the insides. One man named Herman Flander gave them a quarter of a million dollars, and this is like 1950 money, for one of these doodle bugs. This went on for months until, they, I mean, they were going around trying to swindle as much people as they could for a couple of months until J.P. Kahn caught wind of the scam and started investigating. Eventually, he would meet with these two men. They even showed him a piece of metal from the famed Aztec crash, which turned out to be a piece of ordinary aluminum. And uh, so he basically launched a sting operation on them and eventually was able to get enough evidence together. He got the FBI involved and uh, these two guys were arrested and eventually convicted of fraud. Also around this time, a uh, memo was apparently going around, an FBI memo known as, uh, I don't know quite how to say it, it's spelled H-O-T-T-E-L, which would be hotel, but there's two T's in it. So I don't know if it's like the HOTEL memo or the HOTEL memo, I'm not sure, it's a, it's a guy's last name who is now deceased, but it came out and it kind of described vaguely the Aztec situation. It's also where uh, we once again hear about three craft that had crashed and uh, all of that, but people have mainly attributed this as a fabricated piece of evidence by Newton and uh, G. Bauer themselves, and it was probably also not real. So it's a lot of flimflammery, it's a lot of tall tales, it is a scam, it is a con, really. And just to let everyone know, uh, Mr. Flanger, the guy who did buy this machine for $250,000, even though he was told 
don't open that up because it'll blow up. It is rigged to explode if you try to open it up and look inside. He did eventually open it up and look inside, and uh, he found nothing in it but a battery and some wires. You know, just in case anyone wanted to know what made the doodle bug tick, if you will. And that is pretty much the story of Aztec, but it isn't quite over. There are some researchers, I mentioned them earlier, their names are Scott and Suzanne Ramsey, they are husband and wife. And they have spent like, the last 25, 30 years or so looking into the Aztec UFO incident. And I didn't get a chance. They wrote a book. I did not get a chance to read it. Uh, it appears to be out of print. I think I think like, the cheapest one I could find was like 90 bucks. The most expensive one I could find was like 920 bucks. But I couldn't get my hands on it. Uh, there is an audiobook, which I also was not... I didn't, didn't have enough time to sit down and listen to it. I had to read the other book. It was a, a busy week at work and some other stuff going on. So I might get my, I might grab that audiobook sometime, maybe over the break, and give it a listen and see what the Ramses have found and uh, come back and maybe do a little retrospective on the Aztec UFO incident. But they seem to uh, believe that the Aztec UFO did happen... And they're responsible for a lot of the stuff that happens in Aztec now. Like, I think they've helped make the crash site kind of, a, I don't want to say a park, but a place that you can go and visit. It has a plaque now. It's, like, identified. It's ripped off. And up until 2011, there was a UFO conference at Aztec, which I believe they probably had a lot to do with. So I kind of I do want to get a hold of this book and see what they had to say about it. My thoughts on it as of now are I believe something crashed out in Hart Canyon. This is also called the Hart Canyon UFO because that's where the wreckage was allegedly found. Uh, I, rather it be a UFO, rather it be some sort of downed missile or crashed aircraft maybe out of White Sands or may, hey, maybe even out of uh, Fort Bliss which is just south of White Sands from the other story. And, you know, maybe one of those, maybe something like that. And we just had to go and recover it. It was like a government thing. And then these these con guys jump onto that story and make up this fantastical UFO story and try to sell it to this guy who was looking in the UFOs for variety at the time. And that was back in the 40s and 50s where a UFO story, a good UFO story, might make you a little something-something there. And they did that, but then they, they very quickly realized we could take this con, we could take this scam way further and started the thing on the doodle bug and we can find oil with it. And all of this jazz, you know, I mean, they, they made at least $250,000 off the thing. So it worked, I would say. I would say $250,000 in 1950 is a pretty good chunk of change. And so I think the truth might lie somewhere in the middle. You know, maybe there is a UFO that crashed in Aztec, but also these two guys jumped on that story and made it worth their while. So, is the Aztec story true? Is it a hoax? Or maybe, just maybe, is it a little bit of both? And there you have it. That essentially wraps up Aztec and Kyomi. Two very interesting cases in very different respects, I think. 
both worth looking into more. I really, I do want to get a hold of that Ramsey's book, at least listen to it and see what they've got in there. But that brings us to intermission. So I'm going to play a little bit of music. I am working on some new stuff. I just haven't been able to uh, quite get a handle on it and finish it yet. A new guitar thing, a new kind of synthwazy thing that I'm working on. So when I get them, I'll get them and we'll pop them into the show. That is coming. But after that, of course, we have uh, the local headlines and a small town secret to share to wrap up the episode.
Okay, and our first news story is from Daily Mail over in the UK. It is written by Ed White, and the headline reads, Is a convoy of Nazi trucks containing looted treasure lying at the bottom of this Polish lake? Explorer, who searched for Hitler's gold train, says GeoRadar has discovered possible sign. An explorer who spent years hunting for Nazi for a Nazi gold train laden with looted art says he now thinks a lake could be hiding a convoy of Nazi trucks full of treasure. Pietor Copper from Wolczbrights in southwest Poland said he recently carried out a preliminary search of a lake 90 miles away using georadar and found steel which could belong to the trucks. According to the historians, in the spring of 1945, a convoy of trucks set off from the nearby city of Gorlitz with exhibits from a museum. Copper told the media the research was completed on Sunday. We have decent results and we will now try to mine as we have seen a very strong signs of steel. I expect these, tr these could be trucks that were sunk in 1945. Today, it's hard to say what their value is because it depends on whether the wrecks are full or empty. The explorer and his team have been searching the area in the village of Zarsko Wise since December using bottom sonar, GPR, proton magnetometer, and underwater drones. Copper said in March 1945, trucks with some exhibits left the museum in Gorlitz. We know from witnesses that they arrived there on an icebound reservoir and they stayed there. Recently, a diving Guinness record holder went into the lake to video what he could find. Marcel Korkus said, I can confirm the existence of a lime kiln in the northwestern part of the body of water. He added that in addition to the remains of the mine's walls, there were also old tires and a small case. But he continued, I do not confirm the stories about trucks and I believe that this is unlikely that they are lying under a large layer of sediment. Copper said he had not given up hope and would start looking to start diving. He said, now we are waiting for a GPR analysis. If the results are confirmed, we will apply for permission to extract them. The discovery comes just a week after treasure hunters discovered a secret network of World War II tunnels thought to lead to the long-lost Amber Room. The Amber Room was built by Russian Tsar, for Russian Tsar, Peter the Great in the 1700s, and packed with amber, gold, and precious jewels, but was stolen by the Nazis and mysteriously disappeared at the end of the Second World War. The tunnels were discovered at the Mamurki Museum bunker complex in northeastern Poland, close to Kalingrad, the last known location of the treasure. Lake Toplitz in Austria is another lake with an enduring allure for bounty hunters and is believed to contain up to 3 billion in lost Nazi gold, which was dumped into the water by the SS as the war came to a close. In the 1940s, the Nazis used the lake as a naval testing site and the mountains surrounding it as a retreat for military officers. Situated in a dense mountain forest high in the Australian Alps, Toplitz has seen its fair share of death over the years. Several people have died trying to find the legendary treasure. Though the treasure has not yet been found at Toplitz, investigators have recovered 700 million pounds worth of counterfeit notes that were believed to be part 
of a Hitler ploy to cripple the British economy. And it'll be interesting to see what comes of that, uh, all of that really, both the lakes and the Amber Room stuff seems pretty interesting. I hope uh, there's a follow-up to it at some point in time. Our next one is uh, by Chelsea Lewis from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. The headline is, Three towns claim to be the UFO capital of Wisconsin, which really is? Question mark. Wisconsin has its share of capitals. They are uh, semi-normal ones. Mercer, the loon capital of the world, and Park Falls, the ruffled grouse capital, and the strange ones, Mount Horeb, the troll capital of the world, and Norwalk, which has a sign proclaiming itself the black squirrel capital of what is anyone's guess. But three towns, Belleville, Dundee, and Elmham, claim an extraterrestrial title, UFO capital. And while it may seem like a tourist gimmick today, these titles have roots in alleged sightings. All three of the towns have uh, annual UFO events to cement their status. Here's a look at how their claims stack up in order of the first known contact. Dundee is the first one on the list. Vincent's Hideaway on a long lake near Campbellsport is the center of this unincorporated town's claim to fame. It says, it even says it on the bar sign, UFO Headquarters. In addition to alien posters, inflatably green, inflatable green men, and other paraphernalia, owner Bill Benson has something he says people come from all over to see. An alien in a jar. Benson claims someone found it in a cave near Roswell, New Mexico, and gave it to him. And there is a photo of Bill with an alien in a jar. And it's a milky and a clear substance. There's a very worn biohazard sticker on it and what appears to be a toy alien inside. Benson's interest in the paranormal began in 1947 when he said a couple of crop circles appear near his home, according to uh, Wisconsin Frights. He has also said he has seen strange lights and objects in the sky. Benson encourages Patreons to share patrons, I'm sorry, the Patreon thing is in there, to share their UFO sightings and has a binder of photos of them, some captured on near the Dundee Mountain, a came that rises 250 feet above the surrounding land and is believed to be the epicenter for the strange activity. For more than 30 years, Hideaway has been hosting a UFO Days event every July, July 17th this year, to swap stories and keep watch for UFOs, which reportedly have been seen in the night sky at past events. Next up is Elmwood. One of the first reported sightings in this small town about 35 miles west of Eclair in 1975, when Elmwood police officer George Wheeler reported seeing a fire red ball the size of a football field streak across the sky. More sightings followed in the ensuing decade, including another by Wheeler in 1976. His second encounter was that, an encounter. According to a 1976 Associated Press article, when Wheeler went to investigate what he thought was a fire on top of a hill, he found an object he described as a flaming orange object 250 feet across, two stories high, hovering above the ground. Wheeler's radio died as he reported the incident, and he, found barely, and he was found barely conscious, his car with a burnout spark plugs and joints. Wheeler said a blue-white light from the UFO struck him, giving him severe headaches 
a few days later. He wasn't the only one to see or experience something that night. A resident near where Wheeler was found also reported seeing the fiery ball, and a few people said their television sets went out for 10 minutes around that time. There are a number of signs in the county where other sightings have been made. Pierce County Resource Agent Ed Haas told the Journal Sentinel in 1999. The town celebrates its connection to the extraterrestrial world with a UFO Days Festival in the last weekend of July. Uh, the other one, the first town spelled their UFO Days, D-A-Z-E. This town is spelling it correctly, D-A-Y-S. And uh, Bellevue is the last town here. Like Elmwood, this town's claim of UFO sightings have police backing. In January 1987, several people, including law enforcement officers in the small town of uh, Dane Green County border, reported seeing mysterious lights in the sky. Don Schmidt and Richard Hyden, investigators from the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO, UFO Studies, a privately funded UFO research group that was founded by the Northwestern University astronomy professor looked into the incident. Schmidt and Hyden, who are Wisconsin natives, concluded that there were legitimate sightings based on the credibility of the many witnesses, the lack of air traffic in the area that night, and radar confirmations, according to a 1994 Milwaukee Sentinel article. Schmidt told the Sentinel that the FAA station in Aurora, Illinois, picked up the objects on radar and tried to make voice contact, but was unsuccessful. Skeptics, including an astronomer, said the sighting was simply a star in the Orion constellation, which can appear different colors when it is low on the horizon. But witnesses denied the claim. There was no way in hell it was a star, Glenn Casmar, a Bellevue police officer who was one of the first on the scene to see the UFO, told the Sentinel in 1994. There were more unusual sightings over the next few months. The town leaned into the sightings and now hosts UFO Days, uh, this one's spelled correctly, but UFO, everything is capitalized. The U, the F, and the O. Around Halloween every year. The festival in the past has included a parade, a saucer toss, which is an amazing term, a very fun term to say, and the alien costume ball. And then the article finishes up here with another little story. Manitowoc, which uh, sounds vaguely familiar, doesn't it? Had an actual encounter with something from space on September 6, 1962, when a 20-pound piece of the Russian satellite Sputnik 4 crash-landed on the street outside of, RAR, of the RAR West Art Museum. Police were once again first on the scene to find the hunk of space junk. Manitomic sent it to NASA and the Smithsonian, which eventually sent it back to the Soviets. The museum has a replica inside. Outside a metal ring on 8th Street near Park Street marks the spot where it was found. Town celebrates its brush with space, with the space race, with the festival, of course, Sputnik Fest. Complete with costume contest and an alien drop is usually held in September. Uh, I will have to vote. I think my vote will have to go to uh, Elmwood. I just like that story. I think it has the most details to it. It has a lot of other sightings around, and they're marking them on the county. And of course, uh, the UFO UFO Days Festival there. As well, and our last one from the Philadelphia Inquirer, written by Melanie Bruni. The headline reads: "They're a good ghost." A South Jersey school district 
Connors what to do with a vacant, some say haunted, school. Shortly after the Elizabeth V. Edwards School closed in 2004, strange things began happening. Ghost sightings, creaking sounds echoing in the halls of the empty building, music playing, and telephones ringing. Some locals believe the two-story school on North Street in Bargnet, Ocean County, is haunted by its namesake and other friendly ghosts. The supernatural encounters drew the attention several years ago of the sci-fi series network's Ghost Hunters, a reality show that follows paranormal investigators. It's not haunted in a bad way. There are good ghosts, said Art Walsh, 53, a maintenance worker who was in the school alone in 2006, around the time the sightings began. Walsh and others believe the friendly spirits of Edwards and some of her former colleagues roamed the building. Born in 1874, Edwards began teaching in 1903 in the Barnett Public School, a one-room schoolhouse she eventually became the principal. Edwards never worked in the school that the name that she is named after, but was well known. She died in 1965 at the age of 90. Ten years later, Barnett High School was renamed the Elizabeth V. Edwards School. Today, the abandoned 91-year-old building has a real-life earthly problems. Neglect has taken a toll and has fallen into disrepair. Unless the school district can find an investor to make a $21 million in electrical, plumbing, and mechanical repairs, officials say the legendary school could be demolished. From the front, the building, it looks great, said school board president Sean O'Brien. Once you get inside, it's a complete mess. Inside the boarded-up school, chip paint is peeling from the walls. A roof leak caused extensive damage, and the basement is flooded with about a foot of water. A pungent, musty smell permeates the stuffy air. There is no electricity, so officials use flashlight to navigate the dark corners. There are a few signs that generations of students once attended the school. A classroom is lined with wooden chairs. A book left in the science lab is open to a page on New Jersey history. A cryptic chalk message on the blackboard reads, leave while you still can. It is unknown why Edwards would frequent the school in the afterlife. She had a reputation as a passionate educator and a disciplinarian. Edwards never married and uh, knew everyone. Walsh said he welcomed the school marm's presence after he got accustomed to the unexplained occurrences. Like the time an unplugged rotary telephone sitting on the floor in the principal's office began ringing. He believes the apparition he saw regularly was Edwards, occasionally flanked by a man in khaki pants, possibly another school employee named George. I believe it because I saw it, said Walsh. Others have reported hearing items toppling over, lockers slamming, flickering lights, and 40s music playing. There were also scents of cigarette smoke and chocolate. Eventually, Walsh became so comfortable with the spirits that he finally welcomed them when he arrived at work daily. Located on a busy roadway in a quaint downtown, the school was an architectural marvel when it was built in 1930 and served as Barnett High School until 1957. It was then used as an elementary school until operations ceased in 2004, which is a few administrative offices maintained in the building. An ornately designed auditorium remains surprisingly intact with carved chairs, massive chandeliers, and an upright piano. 
planks and a wood stage had been uprooted by the humidity. A clock on the wall stopped at 2.35 p.m. The auditorium could seat several hundred and was used for theater and sporting events. It would be nice to see when it is freshly done, said Ben Fiezo, the district's facilities director. O'Brien said the school board recently formed a committee to find a way to repurpose the school to try and save the building, possibly as a community center. Other suggestions include converting it into a technology or vocational center. Resident Claudia Ernest said she wasn't bothered by the ghost sightings and hopes the building is safe. She believes the 150-year-old house a few doors away in the same block is also haunted. Do I really care? Uh, they aren't bothering me, said Ernest, and she pushed her grandchildren by in a stroller. The district, which enrolls about 3,600 students in six schools, doesn't currently need additional classrooms, said Superintendent Brian Latwis. It could cost about $25 million to build a new school. It's a beautiful building. We would love to do something with it, he said. Several prospective buyers have expressed interest in the building, but officials worry they may be discouraged by the hefty price tag for repairs. O'Brien said the district hopes to make a decision about what to do with the building in about a year. The last resort is demolition, which would cost about $780,000, he said. It's a classic school, O'Brien said. The building has character. There you go. That is this week's local headlines. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And I have uh, just one Your Small Town secret tonight from Reddit. This is from uh, username Bellatrix. Uh, thank you for letting me use the story, and thank you for subscribing to the YouTube channel. At least I'm pretty sure it's you. I can't imagine two separate people with the same username subscribing to the YouTube channel and the Reddit page at the exact same time. So I'm going to assume that you are the same for, the same for both. And uh, this is a story about recent activity in, uh, in their house. I probably fucked up, LMAO. I was told not to talk to it, whatever is there, because it invites it into your life. But I did it anyway, as a joke, and now, at night especially. I'm hearing doors slam and shut in the basement, very loudly, which is odd because the doors down there are always shut. But there is a deep freezer down there, and I'm talking floor shakingly loud. And I know deep freezers can hum and they can get loud, but not floor shakingly loud. 
I'm also hearing things coming from the hallway in the basement washroom as if someone is moving something and it sometimes sounds like it's coming from the fan. I had swore at it in the washroom and then it immediately got louder and I got scared and left, but not before flipping the thing off. My cat is acting a bit strange too. She is looking at something that I can't see, which terrifies me. My cat does that crap too. When I am showering, I'll hear someone knock multiple times to the point where I get out and check, but no one is there. And I know it's not my family because I've asked them. And they said no. And also, my sister is a horrible liar. But this has been happening for a while, so now I don't know. When I'm standing on the carpet in my room, I felt something step next to me because the carpet sank a bit and now I just heard someone walk up the steps. I'm not the only one hearing this. Also, I should mention, I saw one of my dead cats multiple times and I know it wasn't me seeing things, but I don't feel like going in the detail now because I'm lazy. So maybe, maybe another post on the cat in a future, future post. But what I find most scary is how big these things got. Way more severe right after I talked to whatever was there. So please help me. Am I imagining things? How do I get it to stop? And uh, I might link this one in the show notes if anyone wants to hop on the Reddit and leave a comment about advice about trying to get it away. I've heard, of course, smudging, um, burning sage, not endangered sage, please, to get rid of it. Uh, I'm always kind of on the idea that these things get stronger when we start pouring our own energy into it. Maybe it was something that was always there and never really noticed it. And then one day you kind of did. And then the energy starts and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So maybe it might be as simple as just pulling back and not engaging with it anymore and not giving it that energy and giving it that, that space to exist and see, see what that does. But yeah, I'll link it if anyone has any better ideas. And uh, there you have it, a short but pretty interesting small town secret to share with everyone for the end of the episode here. And that is a wrap on episode eight of season six. If you have a small town secret to share, uh, a haunted house experience, a Bigfoot encounter, a UFO sighting, true crime thing, weird history, whatever it may be, and you want to get it on the show, there is a myriad of ways to do it. Uh, you can go to Reddit. I don't say it enough, but we do have we. Once again, there's the we. I have a Reddit page, like a subreddit, that you can go to and join and leave an experience if you want. So that is an option. But the best way to get it to me is to go to stscast.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page, and you will find an email form that you can fill out and send me your story. Or we can do an interview on Skype. Or you could pre-record something and send it in. Whatever works. We'll figure it out. Also down there at the bottom of the page, you will find a bunch of social media links. Uh, Twitter, I'm most active on. That is at STScast. Instagram is at STScast.gram. And Facebook, still messed up from being hacked. So I've got a new one up. I can't put an ad on it quite yet. I'm still waiting for a couple more likes. 
But if you're on the old Facebook page and you want to hop over to the new one to continue getting updates, or you want to find the Facebook page as a new listener, click on that link, that Facebook link at the bottom of the STS cast site, and it will take you to the new Facebook page. And then as soon as I get enough likes, I can rename it at stscast.fb or something and make it easier for everyone else to find. But that is the social media. That is the website. Other things on the website, of course, you can find uh, links to merch. You can find Patreon links as well as other ways to support the show. If you are on Patreon, in the Backroads episode next week, I'm going to be talking about a couple of other odd encounters that happened around uh, the southern part of Texas during the Kyomi incident that may or may not be uh, directly related to it. We're going to talk about some uh, aliens in a cornfield. We're going to talk about a fiery ball that exploded a bunch of weird stuff that also happened around the time of the Kyomi UFO incident. So we'll be getting into that in the Backroads episode. But uh, other than that, if you want to support the show uh, freely, you can also do that and it is much appreciated. Just tell a friend. Uh, everyone gets one other person to listen. We double the audience. And uh, just leave a review on iTunes, on whatever podcast app that you you uh, use, and it will help the show float ever more to the top. So that's it. That's all I've got. Next episode of the season finale of season six is upon us the first of a two-part episode and i'll I'll let you know what it is when it happens (laughs) and uh so until then thank you for listening thank you for supporting uh stay safe stay healthy and most importantly just be kind there's a lot of people out there going through a lot of things and you have no idea what they're dealing with and what they're going through the hate is not worth the goddamn energy. And uh, until next time, every town has a secret. What is yours?